You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. Michele had a chance to interview his old colleague Martin Hudak as he passed by our bar in Singapore. And along with Adrian, Rozelle, and myself, Alex, we make up the Unjiggered team. Enjoy. Hi everyone, my name is Martin Hudak and I'm the bridge between the world of coffee and cocktails. Great. Thank you very much for finding the time to meet up with me here in Singapore, Martin. It's amazing to see you again. Absolutely pleasure to see you again after how many years, huh? It's been a while, huh? Is it? When was the last time we were together? I don't really remember, but I wasn't so, definitely here. So I left in 2016, London, right? Yeah, I think they had that time. Oh, there you go. Fantastic. So, Do you miss London? Be honest, no. There's nothing what I can miss about London. Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us, what is it that you do now? You have a lot going on at the moment, do yeah, you? Yeah. <laughs> you have a quite yeah. full plate. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, my, my life is boring, so I said, why not to put more on my plate? <laughs> so in between a running bar in Australia, uh, working globally for uh, Mr. Black Coffee Liqueur brand, having own consulting company, Spiritual Coffee, which allows me to roast coffee and help other bars and coffee shops around the world. In between all of that, I'm uh, just trying to enjoy Australian weather as much as I can. And uh, yeah, but most of the time I'm out of Australia. Okay. One of the things that people really identify you with, it's like you were one of the first people who tried to bridge gap in between coffee and cocktails, yeah. right? So a lot of us just saw coffee as an afterthought. Would you mind telling us how is it that you started to fall in love with coffee? Again? So it's going back home to Slovakia, where I'm from, to my hometown. Uh, during the studies at the Hotel Academy, uh, we, we did like a couple of courses and we could choose like if you want to be like focused on coffee or kitchen or cocktails and... We had this course about the coffee and I was like, cool, I'm going to do coffee competition, like a junior one, and, I, and it was successful. And then I did bartender competition, but all in the level of like this naive student years when I was thinking, oh my God, I'm the best in my school, I'm the rock star. And then, you know, the reality came, you start working, earning your first money in a real coffee shop or cocktail bar and you're realizing how bad you are. You're realizing that you don't have a judges, but you're real guests who are so judgmental that you're going to cry at the age of 18 and realizing that you don't want to work in hospitality anymore. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's when I first time fell in love with the coffee and cocktails. And uh, it was a little, little small coffee shop and cocktail bar in one. Because once you're running business in Slovakia, you want to do everything, right? You want to do kebab and uh, pizza and, uh, and uh, you know, everything in one place. And I remember my boss asked me, what do you want to do? You want to be barista? You want to be bartender? Because I need to give you hours. I need to know like, if you want to open bar or you want to close the bar. And I was stubborn. I said, I want to do everything. So since that, since 2008, I uh, was that guy who had an uh, interest in both sides. Yeah. So you come from a very, very small town in the middle of nowhere. Exactly. Right? It's almost like your town. Exactly. I had the chance to be in uh, your bar, which was Dublin Cafe. Dublin Cafe, Cafe yeah. Cafe. <laughs> and there was another one called Cuba Libre. And yes. I remember that they were both great bars. You know, I, I thought the, the level of bartending there was amazing. How did you guys like pick up these ideas or like where did you get them from? Because it's quite difficult being isolated, right? I think uh, we were so isolated and so far away from all the bar uh, or coffee community, which was more towards the West, where is the capital, Bratislava. We were so far away that we were uh, more eager uh, and more hungry to learn. And we didn't have an opportunity to visit those bars. So what we were doing as a, as a community in my hometown, which is only two of us, 
uh, we were reading books and uh, watching videos and uh, trying to basically uh, catch as many information as possible from online content, like same as you guys now listening to this podcast, you know, like trying to go to internet and, uh, and basically look what others do and learn and read the book. Uh, but yeah, we were so isolated. We really didn't know like how drink stays in another town because like we didn't have opportunity to travel there. So then how did you get into starting to travel and seeing other places? What, what was the trigger, Jujula? Uh I think um, the first thing was, and to be honest with you, when the brands came to you and they said, oh, we're doing this competition and uh, the winner will go to, I don't know, Sweden, you know, to compete with the Swedish vodka. I was like, cool. So if I'm going to be good enough, I'm going to travel around the world and brands going to pay for it. So for me, the main motivation was to be good in my job, and that I can travel and I was lucky enough I, I visited the world in very kind of like early age and it was paid by brands so no investment from my side just to be prepared for the competition do some drinks and yeah I'd be lucky you are a very young father how difficult was for you to juggle family daughter yeah so I was 17 uh, of course when you are 17 uh, you dream only about the one thing and it's going to the party being drunk and have a fun how, um, well, I had a kind of same dream and uh, I became father very quickly, uh, unexpectedly. But yeah, it was a challenge, right? I didn't expect that. But I said, hey, well, it's here. It's going to happen and I need to face it. And uh, yeah, I was between school, trying to graduate, between the competitions, trying to be the best in my country, uh, between the bar, trying to earn money, and between the home, trying to be a good father and, uh, and a partner which of course didn't work after many years uh, i mean the partner side of it but as a father i think till nowadays i'm sure that uh, my daughter would prove it i'm uh, quite a decent and good father what gave you the motivation what gave you the drive because there's a lot of things to juggle at the same time i i just wanted to prove myself and my family that i can handle the 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 things which uh, which uh, i i'm i'm made if you if you do some some like uh, stupid mistakes and I'm not meaning my daughter's mistake but like whatever you do you should basically clean after yourself you should clean the shit which you make in your own room right so I wanted to prove to everybody like no matter what happening I'm okay to handle it and uh, uh, I don't know how I got this energy and motivation at the age of 17 to basically taking care of a family but um, looking back I'm not regretting at all and uh, it seems to be easy now for me <laughs> You're a young man in Reshov. You're doing your international cocktail competitions as much as you can. What made you think that you needed to move on? Or was it like more of a, the opportunity came along? I, 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 uh, many people like ask me after a while when I start winning the national competitions, they were like, oh my God, you are so good. You're winning so much of it. You are like the best in Slovakia. Like, uh, what's next? And I'm like, hey, it's easy to be the best. It's eight of us in the whole country. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> I felt like, hey, I'm on top of the mountain. I'm the best bard in Slovakia and uh, no one knows where it is. But hey, you know, you, you got this feeling of being the greatest very easily. Um, but it's just illusion. And I said to my boss in Dublin Cafe, I said, hey, I leave one day when I feel my job is done here. And after five years, you know, we, con we, we, we kind of convinced our guest to drink like good quality coffee and not and call it like, proper name we convinced them to drink good quality cocktails and i felt that my job is done and i should have another challenge in my life and i should maybe face it that i'm not as good as i think so only one way how to do it is to leave slovakia and go somewhere where 
where the cocktails are, you know, everyday thing. Somewhere where the uh, where is like a cocktail mecca. Yeah. Was your site set on London from the get go? Or uh, of course, London was like the first call. Uh, it was like I wouldn't think of nothing else. Maybe Prague in Czech Republic, but uh, I like I knew I want to go to London as a mecca of the cocktails. Seeing so many. Uh, Czechoslovakian bartender succeeding in their careers being kind of like a, a motivation and inspiration for me at the same time so I had this feeling like if I go there I'm gonna follow the footpath of the greatest and uh, I can achieve the same things that they did so kind of was like first option you came to London with zero experience in London per se and probably you landed one of the most sought after jobs Bartending jobs there are there, right? Because yeah. you joined the American bar that still nowadays it's one of those places where everybody wants to work, right? So, how did you approach the job and how did it go for you? How did you get the position there? Yeah, many people ask me, like, oh my God, how did you get a job in an American bar? What can I do for it? Like, I just easy put 500 pounds in envelope and go on your knees. Of course, not like that. Uh, I'm still questioning myself and I'm asking, like, and I asked the guys, like, why did you give me a job? Like, why I'm part of this? And um, first of all, when you do interview to American Bar, it has nothing to do with cocktails, you know? It's more about personality, charisma, who you are, if you can fit the team. And uh, when I had an interview, like, no one asked me about the recipe of classic, I don't know, Sazerac cocktail and difference between, I don't know, Mimosa and, uh, you know, Backfist. No one asked me those things, you know? And I was surprised. I was shocked. But then when you think about it, the bars in general, are not about cocktails. It's about the human beings behind the bar. So they were looking for the right personality. And I was there at the right time. I really showed them how I really wanted uh, to get this position. And uh, yeah, I flew to London for the first time in my life. Never been there before. Never saw the subway before. Shaved. Put a shirt on me. Uh, borrowed the tie from my uh, friends. And uh, went there. Uh, of course, late for meeting. Um, I did three different interviews in one day. Of course, it's kind of psychological online test did a phone call interview and uh yeah if you think it's easy it's not you just need to be there at the right time i remember your interview day because i remember you walking in i thought like oh this guy looks cool we talk about this everybody wants to be there but not a lot of people wants to go through the commitment of actually saying i've got a, a, yeah. a job interview let me book a flight i'll be there for 24 hours just so i can get the job yeah. interview when eric it? when eric told me on tuesday that like hey mate like you you passed the online test psychological test that's cool that's the first step how to get a job now we need to do in-person interview would you like to come to london and i said yes and he said where and i said tomorrow and i've never been in london before so that commitment that, that i showed him like how hungry and eager i am and i went there and I really like showed everybody my passion and my English was rubbish. Like still, it's not great, but uh, you know, I showed them I want this job no matter what. And uh, that's the problem of young generations, you know, like young bartenders uh, and barmaids, they are like, hey, I want to work at the Savoy. Like, cool, but what you are able to do for it, like how far you can go, like what you are able to, you know, to leave behind you you know, leave your family, leave your partner? Are you able to basically suffer without no money, no friends in the city you don't know? You barely speak English? Are you able to work 12, 14 hours in, in the most historical, iconic place in the world? Is it really worth? Ask those questions yourself because sometimes we think it's so romantic to wear a white jacket and it's so romantic to be there and grab those awards. But reality is completely different. 
I knew that at the Savoy, because of how much of a second thought coffee was at the time, I knew that this was quite painful for you. How did you reconcile your passion and and like your your willingness to yeah, integrate I, I and become better with coffee with the cocktails? I think I suffer a lot at the Savoy, uh, knowing that what is coffee and what is good quality coffee and how good quality coffee should be prepared. I suffer a lot, and, and to be honest, over this those years at the Savoy, I. Uh, put coffee a little bit on the side, like good quality coffee. But you still won the biggest coffee and cocktails yeah, competition that there is. So yeah, it's not but, that you put it on the side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, like uh, in, in the everyday routine, uh, I wasn't able to perform and I wasn't able to prepare the best quality cup of the coffee. Uh, but on the other hand, I was preparing the most delicious and classiest cocktails ever. And like, you know, I, I put this little bit on the side, but on the other hand, I gained more of the other stuff, such like, uh, you know, hospitality skills, etc., etc. It wasn't easy. You know, I knew we were doing uh, such a bad coffee. I knew we have a bad coffee in our departments. And uh, I wasn't happy with that. But hey, I'm just like one employee from out of 600. Well, like, what can I change here? Nothing. Do you think you contributed towards that specific aspect of it? Uh, in the end of the day, yes. If you look back and now you go to the Savoy, you can still see uh, the current team using uh, good quality ingredients like we talk about coffee liqueurs or they're using like good quality coffee. They try and really take care of the coffee. I think there is this legacy and a kind of like a like a mark that uh, they are more aware of good quality coffee as ingredients, same way as they are aware of other ingredients. Uh, and I'm happy to see this, not only in the Savoy, but like in general in London and around the world. And uh, uh, it's awesome. It's fantastic. You know, I remember when I met you or I met uh, our bar manager, Declan, or even Eric, you know, like you were drinking shitty coffee all the time and uh, or you were drinking a tea. And then suddenly, like, uh, I'm getting texts from around the world like, hey, I'm in Oslo. Where should I go for a coffee? And suddenly I see you in the most fanciest coffee shop around the world and you are like super fancy about the coffee. So it's awesome to see this. And uh, I'm considering myself to be part of this change in your life. And uh I hope you're drinking better coffee now, Michele. I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. Cool. You've been to <laughs> Nylon Roastery, have you? Have you? Yeah, I just, the... I've been there today as well. It's a very great roastery. Mm-hmm. And I like the coffee shop and uh, guys, they're doing a great job. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, how did you find the coffee scene compared to what you saw in uh, Slovakia, in uh, London? In London, you, you know, you see those Australians and New Zealand experts who brought the, the, the style of the third wave coffee and london is that place where you can really get lots of great coffee shops and coffees slovakia was still back it's we still stuck back in in communism and all this dark area so people are drinking staple coffee you know instant coffee like nescafe and it wasn't real stuff right so people were like got used to drink coffee as big as possible with lots of milk and sugar and so I was happy to be in London outside of work and going to discovering those little roasteries. And uh, I believe till now that London is like one of those top three greatest cities where you can get a good quality coffee. How do you think well-established historical coffee markets, like countries like Austria or Italy, how do you think they're reacting to what's happening with the coffee industry? Do you think they're reacting in a proactive way or are they trying to stand you know, their ground? You know, like, uh, yeah, of course, like Italy, Austria, uh, one of the first nations introducing coffee shops and uh, and, and a coffee to the world. Uh, they are so proud on their heritage and they, they are feel more safe. So they want to stuck in the past and don't want to change that much. And that's why we need the young generation of people like us to come back home 
and change something and do, do something new. For instance, like Starbucks, okay? Uh, one of the biggest change in the world. I know it's not the best quality, but they were the first in the world who did the like change of the coffees. And now you can see they're doing, for example, nitro coffee. So nitrogen coffee on top, which like three years ago, no one did. And even Starbucks, which is considered to be just like, you know, like normal chain, they are trying to do something modern. So it's changing, it's definitely changing. I agree with you for the most of it, but I think there is a, a fundamental thing that I do not agree with, which is the fact that coffee is changing because if you keep the price of your cup at one euro or whatever you want, to be, want it to be, the price of coffee is going up. I mean, that's undeniable, right? Yeah. So if you want to deliver a cup of coffee for less money, you have to change the base product, don't of you course. think? Of course, so, you need to source like uh, cheaper coffee, Robusta, second grade coffee from uh, usually from Asian countries. So like coffee is changing. It's just not changing in the right direction, is it? Yes, the coffee market changing. Uh, not everybody can adapt. Not everybody wants to adapt because they are greedy and they want to earn just money. You know, and that's the difference between uh, uh, um, uh, owners who are taking care of the quality and guests, and the owners who are just taking care of the full pockets of money. Uh, fuck them. Yeah. We're in London. We talked a lot about coffee. Now let's talk a little bit about cocktails. You come to the Savoy. A lot of differences there, right? Compared to how drinks were made in Slovakia. Hey, man, think? I never did martini in my life, <laughs> to be honest. I still don't believe that. You said that to me before. No, I still it's don't fucking true. I never did martini in my life. I remember I was doing shadow shit for three days. So it was uh, 11 of uh, December. I remember it was Thursday. And they said, you're going to shadow Eric on this fence. You're going to watch what he's doing and just like be there. And then suddenly, Eric, in the middle of making drink, he was like, hey, I need to pick up the phone. Can you just finish this drink? I was like, what? And he was gone. So I look at that at this drink, and it was like clear liquid in mixing glass. And I was like, okay, that's probably martini cocktail. So it was my first martini cocktail I made in my life at the Savoy. In Slovakia, we were doing a uh, passion fruit uh, mojitos and strawberry caipirinhas, and we were doing a Cuba Libres. And I was doing a Negroni for myself. So uh, so it was a big, big change. And I wasn't ready for, I wasn't ready for that at all. I, I wasn't ready. And I remember even six months after I started, I, I struggled with the recipe for Boulevardier. Or I struggled with the recipe for Vicare. And I remember I was asking you all the time if it's how much Dom Benedictine of what and how, what kind of bitters. And I remember that I struggled and you, you were probably pissed. No, you you overcame that challenge, didn't you? So what tools did you use? What gave you the knowledge that you needed in order to perform? Was it mostly colleagues or did you do a lot of reading? Mostly colleagues and take a pen and paper and write everything down and have it with you all the time, like a small booklet and read it, read it, read it, read it. And then practice, you know, if you're going to do every day Boulevardes and uh, VKRS, for example, then you're going to remember in the end of the day. Right. If you don't have opportunity to make them, like I didn't have back home in Slovakia, why would, why I should remember? You know, we carry if no one ever ordered it. Right. Did you notice any difference in between how you interact with guests? Because we talked about cocktails, the difference was quite yeah. The cocktail, uh, the, the the guests, uh, the Savoy, and especially in London, uh, international tourists in our hotels, they are so educated. They know what they want. Uh, they have the preferences, and uh, they had their own style of drinking. So it was so intimidating like when I see the guests coming towards me and they're like they knew exactly straight what they want so they don't needed me that much to convince them 
it was like, wow, this is like real like cocktail mecca, you know, people coming here and they ask for martini with this gin and shaken and that garnish. I was like, that's incredible. I was very, very happy, but scared that someone's going to ask me something what I don't know. And that happened a million times, of course. And how did you deal with that? Oh, I just ran to the back room and pretending I'm giving you a snack, Google. but I was choking on Google. <laughs> yeah, of course. And uh, because uh, in pressure of you were the person who bridged that gap in between the knowledge and the final drink, right? Yeah. Having taken that out of the equation, how did you think your uh, job changed in London? And what is it that you could provide as an added value to the guest? Because that knowledge was not required from you anymore. Uh, yeah, I, I think in London, I didn't have that many opportunities to create drinks on first place, uh, like back home. Uh, it was more about, you know, it was like I was this Eastern European guy, blue eye, blonde hair, something unusual with this like weird accent and very sarcastic jokes which no one get it and I was just like kind of like I think it was like more kind of like the interaction which I had with the guests and kind of like chit chat I think there was kind of value to that but a part of that I don't think I had any other values you know I could talk about coffee for like all night but like they didn't care about coffee the Savoy but then I pick up the knowledge and uh, I understood the, the the bar the history and I and I as long as you're there and you really like learn a lot then you become confident with yourself, then you can give more to your guests. Can you share what were a couple of your favorite guest experiences? Here at oh, my favorite one you, is... You don't need to use names. <laughs> no, no, my favorite experience is uh, after first month uh, with a big ego from Slovakia, one of the best baristas in the world, myself, coming to the Savoy. Someone just ordered cappuccino and I was like, now I show you guys how to do cappuccino. So I did this beautiful latte art picture in a cup, you know, some like free swans swimming in the lake, you know, incredible, <laughs> right? And we had this server, Mario Inciguera from Napoli and uh, he came like even like like 10 seconds back from the floor with the coffee. He was like, hey, they, they complain the coffee is too cold. And I was like, Mario, what you mean? Oh, they, they, she complained, it's too cold. And I was like, okay, maybe, I, I don't know, the cups cup were too cold or like, I don't know what happened, but I know how to do cappuccino, right? I'm doing this all my life and my palm is like a thermometer. I know exactly it should be 56.5 degrees. <laughs> I feel it, you know? So I did, okay, I preheated cup this time. I did it again. And five seconds later, he running back like, oh, she complained again. She said it's too cold. And I was like, Mario, you must be fucking kidding me, right? They were like, no, no, do the quick, 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 quick one. Super hot. <laughs> you know, Mario, remember. So I was like uh, bitten tears because like my ego and my like title and like all this coffee knowledge telling me if you go over 70 degrees when you're steaming the milk, you just basically break protein and your stomach cannot digest it. So basically you're going to shit yourself in the end of the day. So that's when you go to some very bad coffee shop with where you have hot milk you running to the toilet now i know that but she didn't and that's the way how she drink her cappuccino all her life so i did it third time so i preheated cup preheated pitcher i make everything super warm hot steaming boiling so the milk looks like a froth from the oh it's just horrible disgusting cup of coffee and then uh yeah he served it and then he came back and he said well she left without paying she didn't even touch it and i was like no at this way. point i was in a back room I took the milk jug, I threw it on the floor, and I said, with the tears in my eyes, I won't do coffee in this fucking bar. Never, ever. And then Eric came to me, uh, head bartender Eric Lawrence. He put a hand on my shoulder, and with very calm Eric Lawrence style, he said, well, that's not the right attitude, Martin. 
because on the first place, you are here for your guest and not for yourself. And I kind of agree with that, you know, uh, as the Walt Disney said, uh, the guests are not always right, but they're always your guests. And I think that's what matter in the end of the day. I know the cappuccino should be <laughs> less than 70 degrees and I show how it should be served. Hey, but she asked for it. So that yeah, was the best exactly. learning curve. And uh, as for me, like the best moment when I realized how important is the guest, not you. I think this highlights one of those things that makes Eric probably the ultimate bartender, right? Is uh, It's just a re- representation of what a bartender ha- it should be. Like, he's always polite, he's always Yeah, he's preparing spoken. you for a life. He's preparing you for a life, you know? He's teaching you about life. Uh, I never saw him shout. He never shout on anyone. I never heard him swear. He is always, like, super calm, most relaxed person ever. And he knows how to manage uh, all those feelings and, and fears. And it's just, I don't understand how he's doing it. But the best learning curve was the time with him when uh, he really gives you like lots of things. You're not realizing at that moment, but then we look back. And you realize, you're like, yeah, wow. That guy is wow. the guy, it's isn't impossible. it? Yeah. Picture perfect, isn't it? It's ultimate. Yeah. You know, it's like real gentlemen. So, Eric, I hope you're listening to this right now and you are like so happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can send us 50 pounds each later, no problem. <laughs> anyway, during this period of time, you still carried on with your coffee competitions. And if I'm not mistaken, you did two? Did you two, two times? Yeah, exactly. When I was at the Savoy, I still was carrying, I did two, yeah, you're right. Um, it was 2016. Uh, so what competition was it? Because not everybody yeah, knows. Yeah, you know, like every bartender, no world class in Bacardi Legacy or whatever, and no one knows coffee competitions. But there is this incredible you know, category in the coffee world competition, which is called Coffee in Good Spirit, which allows you to create Irish coffee and your own signature coffee cocktails. And uh, I knew I didn't want to do latte art, like pictures in a cappuccino. I knew I didn't want to do like classic barista stuff. That's boring, you know. I want to do like coffee and cocktails. I was competing for seven years, starting 2010, right after school, back home in Slovakia. And uh, yeah, first year I went there, and big ego, you know, young bartender. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to show you, you know dry eyes and all this bullshit perfect music perfectly uh trimmed hair and beard and i was disqualified i was five minutes over time (laughs) a year after i went there again and i was like cool i'm gonna be on time i'll manage i was on the time of course but i was disqualified again because the rule number 56 on page 32.a and b telling you when you brew coffee you cannot put it on top of the coffee machine because there should be no liquid on top of the machine and that will lead you to disqualification nice fuck you i'm not gonna read the rules i'm a bartender right who cares about the rules uh year after 2013 um 2012 sorry i went for the third time in a third national championship in slovakia i read the rules 60 pages like a Bible. I managed to be on the time and I became second in Slovakia, which was great achievement because it was three of us competing. And then the year after I won, went to represent Slovakia in France, became sixth in the world. 2014 in Melbourne, became second in the world. And you have those trophies at home and like, you know, your ego telling you, oh, you, you can do better. So I moved to the Savoy and I had many opportunities to be better because, you know, access to the coffee and tools and sponsors was better in London. I had a great support from all of you guys. And 2016, I went to Ch- Shanghai, China, and it was my third time in the world final. Number three is lucky number. You've been second year before. Expectations are high. Everybody expecting you're going to win. And I fucked it up, and I became second again. So twice second. What I'll, mistake did you do? Um, you 
I um, I don't want to blame technology, but that's what I did at that time. I set up my grinder for espresso a little bit badly. So my extraction of espresso, instead of beautiful short cavo bristretto, I got this swimming lake of dripping coffee. <laughs> oh, it was just horrible. But I'm not going to complain about technology. What I did, I complained at the time. I complained about the judges, air, pollution, everybody. You know, everybody's fault, not mine. You know, we are third time in the world final. And it was just 10 points different between you and world champion. Uh, I cried and I was like, I'm not going to compete anymore. Like, I know I'm good, but like, why I cannot win? Uh, it's just ego problem and you saw that in your head and I was still at the Savoy year after 2017 and I said you know what I'll do it for the last time uh, fourth time went to the world finals and how you know the story you know it was in Budapest Hungary and uh, and I won final after seven years well done congratulations I remember when you won well you apart from the fact you were over the, the moon because you made, you made like 50 Facebook posts in like three days about it. <laughs> What I think was summarizes this at best was the bar manager, Declan. Declan yeah. When uh, you won, I just shared one of your posts and like very briefly, you know, like, well done to Martin for this, 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 this. And then what he said was, I've seen how much preparation goes into this. It's like, this is mind boggling. And that's it. And that's when I understood that if you take something to a certain extent, you show to people that you can find so much depth into it, that's when you win people over, I think, Exactly. Right? Like, I was spending all mornings in the roaster, which was, like, in opposite side where I lived and then back to work, and I was doing that for, like, months. Was it Union Roaster? Union Roaster, yeah. It was for months, you know, practicing and traveling there and back and forth from work. And, like, people, they don't know how much dedication, how much preparation goes to that, only when they see it and... The, uh, it's just like for every any other competition, but in this particular moment, it's a coffee, which is so hard to manage. Um, I must tell you, you know, when I won, I was like, fuck yeah, it's over. No more competitions. No more. It's over. I don't want to do it again. But you still did work class. Was it the same year? It was the same week. Exactly, right? I did work class on Friday, UK national finals, and then on Monday, I traveled to Hungary. Did you th do you think that you could have dedicated more time to work class? Oh, absolutely. Like, I think if I would dedicate more time, I would do way better. Uh, I heard rumors I was, like, in top three or something like that, and I won, like, one of the challenges. Uh, it was incredible incredible pre uh, pressure on, you know, it's world class. It's top 10 UK bartenders. I never did world class in my life, and uh, you represent Savoy. You did world class as well. You know how it is. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have this coffee finals next week. I was shitting myself, it, and then in between you want to work. But what was good, I had a support from you. You know, I got days off, and you covered me, guys, and like you helped me. And then of course you need to have a partner at home. And uh, my my partner, she was like so supportive, and you know she understood, and she really like, oh my god, helped me a lot. So then after that, this was 2016, 2017, 17. Mm -hmm. So and then from 2017 onward, when did you decide to leave the Savoy and why? So 2017 was like a massive roller coaster. Top 10 world class, British bartenders. Became the world champion in coffee and good spirit. I don't want to wank now over the microphone, but uh, you need to understand, the Savoy became the best bar in the world. We became the best bar team in the world. We won the best European bar. Uh, we won, I think, everything we could win. Everything. And you know what I realized? I'm not happy. Why? It didn't bring me happiness. You've been waiting for this moment all your life to be there to win those competitions, you know? And then suddenly you achieve that and it's this kind of like emptiness. 
I became so empty. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I just, it's so weird. I was expecting I'm going to be happy and over the moon and I'm going to carry that. And then I was like, shit, I achieved all my life dreams and goals. And, uh, and that's it. It's over. It's over. And it's kind of like challenge accepted. It's like what I'm going to do next. And uh, 2017, it was, um, I think, uh, around September, October, November, all those three months after all these competitions, when I realized if I cannot be happy here and I'm already on top of the mountain, like where I can be happy, what can I do? What's next? You know, like why I should leave the most iconic bar, you know, I start questioning myself. It's very weird. It's very weird because if you are working the best bar in the world, you you are you are you must be very stupid that you leave at the best moment. And I did. I left. So you must it must have been quite difficult for you to decide where to go after that. Am I correct? Yeah. Because yeah. you took quite a, a, a time a bit of time off. Yeah. So I travel uh, a bit. I went to Australia apparently with Mr. Black at that time. I, we did some guest shift representing Savoy and. Uh, I travel and then when you travel, you know, you see other countries, you see what other people do and then you start realizing how bad is your life, not work life, but like social life. Uh, I remember we came back to London from a sunny Australia and I was like, oh my God, what are we doing here? Like why we are here? Is that the moment you realize you wanted to live there? Yeah, exactly. Like we went to Australia in November, October, November 2017. We went back to London. It was Christmas period at the Savoy, the most craziest period when you shoot yourself in the head and just like don't be there. And we, I realized it doesn't work anymore. Like it's not worth it anymore. Like I don't want to be here. You know, I want to have a better social life. I want to have a better personal life. I just want to be a happy person because I was feeling I'm not happy at the Savoy. And I was so worried that my guests will see this and my colleagues and my bosses. I was like burning out. I was burning out a little bit. And I think I left at the right moment. What is it that made you feel unhappy there? Was it the fact that you didn't have a goal or was it the fact that you had this sort of lack of life outside the workplace? I think it was, uh, so like work-wise, I think uh, was that feeling I achieved everything what I could. Of course I didn't, you know, like knowledge-wise and there are so many things you can still improve and the South is a great place for that. But I like, I felt like I fulfilled all my dreams and goals and I was like, oh my God, what's next? You know, I was scared, like, what's next? I did everything what I could do at the subway and I felt like I have nowhere to move, which is bullshit because I could always be better and better and, you know, grow within the company. But what I struggle with is more outside, you know, it's not work itself. I love Savoy, but it was that outside life in London. If people never, you know, many people go to London, oh, it's just an amazing city. Yeah, of course, you come for a holiday and you're lucky because you have one sunny day, which means another 364 days are shitty days. Uh, but if you go for a holiday, it's fantastic city, mesmerizing, you know, historical and like so multicultural. But try to live there. Try to go to Northern Line on Friday night where you have lots of uh, tourists which standing on the opposite side where they shoot an escalator and you just want to kick in their ass. You know, try to live from the salary to the salary and try to have your day off when you're thinking you go to the beautiful park and it's just like rainy and foggy, you know. It's just city, this city gonna chew you and like spit you out and basically you're gonna lose all your hair and you're gonna be like in such a bad condition. Do you have any regrets about leaving? No, not at all. Zero? Zero. I'm like super like happy that I left and I left at the right moment and I'm not regretting at all. Is there anything you miss from the Savoy? From the Savoy? Yeah. 
not from London specifically because London, I think Maggie. You, yeah, you miss Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, we're not gonna go into Maggie. <laughs> anyway, fine okay. and dandy. Fine and dandy. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Very, very chatty lady. Yeah. yeah, Maggie was coming to the subway for 48 years and she was drinking always the same beverage. Um, yeah. Whiskey Sco- and dry. Scotches, yeah, Scotch and ginger. Yeah. No ice. Quite a character. Yeah, well, you know, I miss those characters, you know, like the like the people who made this place feel like home and they know you by name and you know them by name, like Mr. White and Douglas and other people. Like, you, it's just this incredible kind of like... Uh, bondage you create with the guests and normally you wouldn't do that uh, and uh, I miss this and I, and, uh, and I must say I miss a, a, a colleagues which we had at the time that time the team which we had uh, you Luca Joe Schofield Eric myself and then the new generation who came after us and you develop such a tight bond do you when you're there it's get under your skin it does no so you have your uh, site. You have your site uh, set on uh, Australia. You're good to go. Now what? What did you do? How did yeah. you get there? Yeah, you're good to go, and you think like, "Hey, I'm going there," and then like you, you go to embassy mm-hmm. or you go like to agency, and they tell you, "Well, okay, you have this and that option. You are Slovakian, unfortunately, which means you need to have in your account thirty thousand euro to prove them that you are able to live there. Then you need to have this type, this type of paper, that type of paper, and you're like, "Oh wow, okay. First of all." Um, I'm living in London and I lived here for three years. My savings are zero. Uh, second of all, <laughs> I like, I, I, like I don't have money and you need to start thinking, okay, how you can make the papers work so you can go there. You know, Australia is so far away and they're doing so well economically and politically because they're not letting anyone in. You know, it's not like London where you have a half of Italy there. You know, you just go there and you're there. Two thirds. Yeah. <laughs> so Australia is uh, very strict with... Um, uh, people going over there and uh, starting new life and I think it's good that they are like that there are many challenges obstacles and you need to you know so uh, when I left Savoy it was a March 4th of March 2018 it was Wednesday and next day I flew straight away to uh, Rome in Italy then I went to Beirut and I started like kind of like traveling around the world and to be honest I just uh, I would be very stupid if I wouldn't because people still had this connection of me and Savoy and they were willing to pay for my flights and guest ships and seminars. So I did that for like three, four months till we were waiting for visa, which allows me to uh, increase my capital, some money and uh, expand my name. And I remember it was in Japan, it was May, Tokyo Bar Show, and I got a phone call from embassy, visa approved, you can move to Australia. Basically, then you move there. Do you have a job at this stage or not really? You just have a visa saying I can go to Australia, right? Well. You know, it would be stupid to move to Australia and not to have a job. You know, we know a couple of our ex-colleagues, I'm not going to name them, you know, they left and they didn't have a job, right? Because they were relying that someone will hire them. I knew uh, from beginning when I was leaving Savoy, I knew when I moved to Australia, I'm going to work with certain people, certain company. I knew that I'm going there for like some project which might happen very soon. So I was in contact with them. And I knew uh, I want to do uh, this project with them. So it wasn't like blind that I'm going there like, hey, I'm from the subway, take me on board. No, no, no. I knew that I'm going to basically open one day a new exciting project. At what stage did you get into a relationship with Mr. Black? 
I worked with Mr. Black for many years. You remember at the Savoy, I still support yeah, yeah, him a lot. Course. Like they didn't pay me, but like we were like friends and I really like appreciate that product. And I remember when I moved to Sydney, uh, 10th of July on my birthday, actually last year, um, it was like two months after Mr. Black celebrated fifth anniversary and they invite like all employees and friends and they invite me as well. And my partner, she was telling me, I think they're going to offer you something. So I went for this birthday party, nothing happened that night. I was a bit like sad. Like, why, you know? And then two days later, the owner, Tom Baker, was like, hey, would you like to have a coffee with me in the morning? Went for a coffee, and he basically put a paper on the table and said, like, hey, we create a new role, the Global Coffee Ambassador. There is no one who can fit this role better than you. Would you like to come on a board, work part-time with us? And I was like, oh, wow, okay. Because I couldn't imagine to leave the bar world. I couldn't imagine to be brand ambassador and travel around the world and... You know, I love bar. I want to do bartending. So it was a very hard decision. How did you consult the two things? Because how much do you work for uh, Mr. Black? So, how much do you work in uh, maybe Sammy, which is the venture that you open, yeah. right? So um, I'm, um, uh, maybe Sammy is the bar which we open uh, this year in January. Uh, I started with Mr. Black. I started working with Mr. Black in September. So till we open the bar, uh, I work with Mr. Black a lot, which helped me to cover my life, financial life. Uh, on a paper, I'm a part-time Mr. Black, and uh, and at the same time part-time for maybe semi, um, which uh, makes basically five days a month to travel around the world and support Mr. Black. The rest of I need to be at work. Now our work is very flexible. It's not a five-star hotel. We are a small independent bar. We have a great team, supportive team, and they understand I'm going to travel and I need to travel with the brand. So uh, whenever I need to go, they're like super flexible and it's like, yeah, absolutely. In the end of the day, it's not only that you're spreading Mr. Black brand, but you're spreading maybe Semi and you're doing great name for us as well. Who came up with the concept of maybe Semi? Uh, it was, a, you know, it was a back in back a couple of years ago when Stefano Catino, uh, a guy from beautiful part of Italy, Cinque Terre from Vernazza, mm-hmm. uh, he basically moved to Australia 12 years ago and he had the idea open like this operative pizza pasta bar called maybe Frank, inspired by Frank Sinatra and the Red Pack. Now he took on the board Andrea Gaudi. Um, who was ex-artisan guy, you know, and like expectations of ex-artisan guy, like you're gonna be like GM or bar manager. No, he started working in this pizza bar. <laughs> and uh, 2017, they became the best uh, restaurant cocktail bar in Australia. Andrea won world class, went to Mexico, became number three in the world. And the Maybe Frank became kind of like a, a name. Even in tells the cocktails are in top 10 restaurant cocktail bars in the world. So those guys, they had like kind of idea like, oh my God, like we're doing pizza, pasta and Negronis all day and we are so successful. We should open cocktail bar. They knew at this time that I'm moving over as well. The Balash Molnar, ex-artisan and ex-lobster bar Shangri-La Hong Kong, he moved over. So they they start building this team, you know, and it's like, it's just logical thing. After maybe Frank, we need to open the bar named after another Rat Pack member, which is Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, so that's why maybe Sammy came on the board. And it was kind of funny. We we had this joke. I don't know how it happened, but I mean, maybe we were drunk. But we were looking at each other and we were like, you are from Artesian. You are from the Savoy. You are from the Shangri-La. It's a hotel bar. It's like, let's open a hotel bar, but without hotel. Like, no restriction, no boundaries, and of course, no budget. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> 
So if you think you're gonna have this beautiful crystal John Jenkins mini glasses like you had at Savoy and you're gonna give complimentary Runad Rose, hi guys, I did this last week, sorry. Uh, you're wrong, you cannot do it. It's a small bar. We acting we are five-star hotel bar. Of course, we are in terms of hospitality, sequence of service, but in terms of anything else, <laughs> it's so that hard. That sounds so captivating though. What did you uh, give to the place, you think, out of, because it's such big personalities, right? What angle did you bring to the maybe semi project? Yeah, myself, I think it's this coffee part, you know, to, to combining coffee and cocktails. You know, the the guys, Italians like Andrea and um, uh, Stefano, like, sorry guys to say that, but you fucking zero given about coffee. So I brought this specialty coffee aspect to the bar and then you like with the name I have in the coffee world, we need to do coffee cocktails. We need to roast our own coffee. We need to have like good coffee machine. So that's the first aspect. And the second one, I brought this kind of... Uh, relaxed atmosphere uh, kind of this like friendly and funny part which i'm doing uh while balash is more into the numbers and like organizations and papers and orderings and andrea is more uh, like a beverage director overseeing you know like new creations and menus uh of course at the savoy i developed this uh working floor working flare techniques which you have as well and luca Corradini and you know, I I know how to roll the shaker, all this stuff. So for them, they never saw this and they never did that. For them, it's kind of like funny to have me behind the bar because I'm like a monkey from circus. You know, every time someone come, Stefano coming to me and like, hey, can you roll the shaker? Just show them how we're doing. Like, Stefano, I'm not a monkey here, you know? Like, I'm doing my job. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, like, uh, so it's kind of like, kind of little working flat and fun and coffee aspect and, and, uh, most of all, I think uh, because I spent a longer time than guys at the at the, at the artesian. I don't want to like. Uh, no, but Balash was very unlucky, was it? Because yeah. he came in towards. I mean, towards the end. Towards the end. Towards but the then end he, of the, the artesian. But then he and dancing with love. But I think I'm overseeing in a, in the semi. My role is more kind of like a training. So I'm doing lots of trainings in terms of sequence of service, hospitality, uh, and the way how to deliver service. So I really learned a lot from, for example, from Alice, our ex-colleague. I learned a lot from Declan, uh, how to deal with the critical situation, complaints, intoxicated guests, and uh, this stuff. So I'm really taking care of that. Are you happy? Oh my God, I'm super happy. Absolutely like oh, over the moon. So you are traveling quite a lot, are you? Yeah, a bit. Um, they said five days a month, but now I'm already on seventh day here in Asia. So, <laughs> yeah, a lot. Do you like the fact that you picked Australia? Do you still think it's a top one spot? Uh, <laughs> for being ambassador and traveling around the world is the worst spot to be. So it takes you basically a day and something to move somewhere. Uh, but hey, when I'm flying, I can do two things which I never had time for, and that's sleep and watching movies. So I'm not regretting at all. It's a great. It's still worth to be in Australia, no matter the fact that I I need to fly a lot. I still love it because when I was in London, I was always traveling away because I tried to escape from that city. Now when I'm away, I just can't wait to be back. That's fantastic. Good. Thank you very much. Uh, I think this is almost a wrap. Absolutely. The last question I will ask you, which is I ask everybody: If you are about to die, what would be your very last drink? Morphine. <laughs> more from a cocktail perspective I guess. Uh, from cocktail perspective uh okay uh depends what kind of death uh, that will wait for electric me. chair okay so as martino soldati will say electric uh no uh electric chair okay so i'm still uh 
able to enjoy the drink. I'm still like in a good, good. Yeah, like, like that's all fine. I'm still like right? a vital, vital, right? I'm yeah. still like functioning. Hundred percent. Okay. So, in this case, my last drink will be hot Irish coffee. Oh, Beautiful man. hot <laughs> Irish coffee. You had to say that. Didn't oh you? yeah. No, no. I, I just it is something. Something amazing about this balance between cold cream and hot coffee and this sweet, delicious whiskey underneath. Oh, basically, yeah. And I would sip it for long. Like, I would take, like, half an hour yeah, for that. Take the most, take the most, out, <laughs> take of the the most out of it and I would lick the glass. And, yeah, Irish coffee. As, as, as much as it's not considered as a proper cocktail, sometimes I would do Irish coffee. Great. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Martin. Absolute pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to our interview with Martin Hudak. You can find more content from us on YouTube and Instagram where we post our classic Tuesday videos every Tuesday and we show you how to make classic cocktails in less than one minute. We are unjiggered-media on Instagram and you can follow our personal accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself, Rizal23 for Rizal and Adrian Besser for Adrian. Thank you for listening. See you next week.